Hey, before we get started today, here's a few words from the New Yorker's Joshua Yaffa, the author of Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. He's going to tell you a little bit about why you should support the Eurasian Knot. I've been listening to Sean Guillory's podcast, now known as the Eurasian Knot, for many years, and I know I can speak for lots of my colleagues who think, read, write, and debate Russia for a living, and noting that this podcast is reliably novel and interesting, introducing me to subjects, authors, and moments in history about which I might otherwise not have known. Every episode is an education and an adventure. If you also value Eurasian Knot's deep dive approach to knowledge sharing, consider becoming a monthly Patreon at patreon.com slash Euronaut. Patreon.com slash E-U-R-A-K-N-O-T. Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh. And as Josh said, if you find this podcast valuable, if you learn a lot from it, please consider helping us out and becoming a patron at patreon.com slash or go to euronaut.org and find that patron link and help us out and become a monthly patron. So, this is the sixth episode. We have one more after this one in our series on religion in post-socialist societies, which was organized last spring as part of Reese's interview series at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, this series was organized along with Susanna Bogomil, who is at the Institute of Archaeology and Ethnology at the Polish Academy of Sciences. Once again, I'm here with Susanna Bogomil for our sixth interview in our series on religion and socialist societies. And we have a really great guest and very interesting topic. We have Marjorie Maldostan-Balzer on indigenous people and shamanism in Russia. So, Susanna, why this topic? Why is this an important topic for our series? So it is really very, very important topic for me. And uh, yeah, yeah, let me explain why. So look, Sean, majority of our podcasts deal with Christian religions and particularly with Russian Orthodoxy, which was, as you remember, our conscious decision because we really wanted to show various dimensions and layers of religion in post-socialist states. But this podcast is totally different, don't you think? It clearly shows how Soviet regime was afraid of everyone who fought independently and how much the Putin's regime is afraid of the same group of people. And this history that you, our listener, will listen uh, in this podcast, the history of Yakut shaman Alexander Gabichev, reveals how much there is a political agency hidden in spirituality. And that's why I think it is really amazing podcast. Well, thanks a lot, Susanna. Marjorie Mandelstam-Balzer is a faculty fellow at the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University and co-founder of the Indigenous Studies Working Group at Georgetown. She's the valedictory editor of Anthropology and Archaeology of Eurasia, a translation journal that features scholars from the region. And she has authored or edited seven books on Eurasia, mostly focused on Siberia, including Galvanizing Nostalgia, published by Cornell University Press in 2021, and Shamans, Spirituality, and Cultural Revitalization, published by Palgrave in 2012. Here's Marjorie Mandelstam-Balzer. So, I'd like to start, as I do with most of my guests, by asking you, how did you get interested in studying indigenous people in the Russian Federation? Because this is not a topic that is dealt with a lot, far less than, uh, of course, it should be. So uh, there's always an interesting personal story in these answers. So how about you? What drew you to it? Well, first of all, it was back in the Soviet period, and it's a bit unusual, but I was very interested in the histories of indigenous Native Americans. And I had been looking especially at Alaska and the Russian Alaska and knew that the Russians had actually gone as, as far south as Fort Ross, just north of San Francisco. And I was fascinated by 
which groups they may have encountered and what happened. I had a thesis advisor who was one of the world's experts on Russian America and and indigenous people, Tlingit. So I thought, what's on the other side? I wanted to go in on the back, into the back door in a way. So I got in intellectually through the Bering Sea. I was fascinated by, and this was a little naive of me at the time, but by Chukwatka and by my understanding that there had been indigenous families that had gone back and forth across the Bering Sea and communicated with each other. Even up until World War II, they were still communicating with each other and sometimes even visiting secretly across that very strange Soviet-American border. And therefore, I thought, how can I do this? First of all, I had to learn Russian. I didn't have it from my own family background, despite my name. And I needed to um, understand how to get on a cultural exchange as a graduate student for doing dissertation research. I, I did that, and I got into the exchange as the first anthropologist. I was very excited, and I should have been more grateful, but they gave me all sorts of access to archives. And I kept saying, help, help. I'm a cultural anthropologist. I want to talk to people. <laughs> I, I want to get out into the villages. Again, it was naive because it's a closed zone to think I could have gone to Chukwatka, opposite our Alaska in the Bering Sea. But instead of that, I was snuck onto, allowed onto, shall we say, a very low-level so-called expedition. They called them ethnographic expeditions, student-oriented, from what was then called Leningrad State University. And I was allowed to go to the Hantimansiski Akug in West Siberia, near the Arctic Circle, And I was assuming it was going to be an exercise in learning how Soviets do anthropology. I thought they'd probably keep me on a very short leash, and I understood all that. But I got to the village, and the absolutely lovely head of our expedition said, Marjorie, you got this far. We're going to let you talk to people as you wish. And so I did what I had dreamed of doing, which is talking to babushki, older women, grandmothers, for their life histories. I was able to actually collect histories, including of one so-called rebellion that had happened in the 30s that was very unknown, that gave me all sorts of openings and insights into Siberian peoples. I was absolutely hooked. And so my first monograph was about the Hanthi. It's called The Tenacity of Ethnicity. It's Princeton Press a while ago, 1999. And I was, as I say, just fascinated. But then I also started being a little ungrateful. I started thinking, gee, you know, I really want to study a good news story. I want to find an indigenous people that have enormous amounts of cultural confidence that have managed to weather the storms of the Soviet period. And so I applied to go back to the cultural exchange for 85, 86 was accepted. And after a lot of politics that I won't bore you with, I finally was allowed into the field in then Yakutia, as it was called, now Sahar Republic, their own name for their own republic. And I was assigned someone, by that time I was postdoc, but I was assigned someone to kind of watch me. They were very nervous. And my fascination with Mm -hmm. Sahar Republic and with the Saha people, one of the larger of the indigenous peoples, really was able to blossom. So how did they accept you or how did they respond to you here, this American coming to this far off place, an outsider of sorts? How was their reception of you? I'm always curious about this with anthropologists. First of all, I was pretty unique. I was a very strange creature at that point. And especially in Saha Republic, and and actually all over, yes, indeed, an outsider and a foreigner. I want to now say, though, something that I always say to frame my remarks, and that is, I do not speak for Indigenous people. And I've always framed my interactions with them as being fascinated by their rich, beautiful cultural traditions and not trying to pretend that I am myself Indigenous. It's a really important distinction to make. And I think I I came at it while maybe somewhat naively because I was already interested in issues of spirituality and 
shamans through time. I knew that it wouldn't just be about shamanism. I knew I wanted to do urban-rural interrelationships. I started out by saying I was interested in weddings, and people are always interested in weddings and interested in interesting marriages, a nice, neutral Soviet topic, right? And so I was able to reassure people, first of all, that I was a real anthropologist. The other subtext here is, of course, in 85-86, it wasn't Gorby era yet, quite, even though it was officially. It wasn't out in the regions in the republics. And people really were suspicious that I was a spy. And I had to get through a whole lot of a very serious credibility hurdles, shall we say. And I was very nearly kicked out. I don't want to go into too many details, but at one point in 8086, the Saha Republic, then Yakutia, saw some of the very first demonstrations of non-Russians from the entire Soviet period. There was a, a, a brawl, an interethnic brawl. And students had been beaten up on an ice skating rink near the university on a creek by Russians, by hoodlums. And they wanted a little bit of action of that glasnost that was being advertised from Moscow. And they said, wait a second, this isn't right. And they actually, the following day, marched down Lenin Prospect to Lenin Square and demanded to see the chief of police. This was unheard of. And there were more students in that demonstration than any of the authorities ever would have dreamed. And they told the students to go back to the university that they would be that they would be talked to. Uh, where do I come in all this? Um, they had hustled me to the local craft factory on the edge of town. I was nowhere near, but I was accused of being an outside agitator and even a ringleader of this particular demonstration, which I totally wasn't. It turned out that I did know some of the people who had demonstrated and who were leaders, but I've only been finding out, I mean, even years later, even just recently in the last month, I've talked to people who were either involved in those demonstrations or whose parents were actually expelled from the university because of them. So this was before the more famous demonstrations in Kazakhstan, that some people say started the ball rolling of the non-Russian republics being rebellious. Anyway, instead, thank heavens, instead of throwing me out, cooler heads prevailed, people who already did know me. And they said, maybe we should do what she's been asking for all along and send her to some of the villages. Let's just get her out of the city. So that was the beginning of my ability to do what my favorite thing is in field work. And that is I make friends and then they take me home to their parents. Their families, their a mutual exile, <laughs> and, and by doing this, by by being able to make friends and then go home with them, and there's a lot of rural, urban, urban, rural interaction. It's not like you just suddenly become urbanized and forget your roots. You don't. So it was a marvelous opportunity that became more regularized as I realized it was a good field technique to go back with people who I already know to their families and to travel around villages with people who are already friendly and insiders. And we're not talking about hotels here. We're talking about living with families. And so it was pretty important that I had the personal connections. And I was able to go to the Sahara, call it various regions of the Sahara Republic, Ulysses. I've gone to just about every Ulus inside of this republic. And at this point, I should mention, because people, including very savvy, well-educated, geographically knowledgeable people, don't realize Saha Republic is the size of India. Undisputed India, anyway. Uh, it is a huge republic inside of the Far East, inside of the Federation of Russia. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That's absolutely fascinating and amazing experience. But let's talk about the term indigenous because there is an international definition. And then, of course, every individual state has its own categorization of indigenous peoples. So what makes a people indigenous by your working definition? This is one of your harder questions. This is really important, and I'm really glad you're asking. But I'm going to give you an answer that really, I guess I should start by saying, needs to be framed with people if they're very interested going in before I give my own fairly liberal and flexible definition to the United States definition of indigenous people, 
and to also Georgetown's website, because we have a marvelous website, indigeneity.georgetown.edu, and it has a specific written explanation. Here's the core of it. The issue for me is, number one, self-identity. And that, of course, is the most liberal, big catch-all. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a state. So I'm an anthropologist who gets to say, I take people seriously when they say they're indigenous. So self-identity and then connectedness to land for a community that has been very, very, very involved in the sense of their own rootedness in homelands within a given state. Within a given state, aha, they don't have their own state. And that's part of the UN definition too. These are non-state peoples. They may have their own homeland regions within a particular national state but they are mildly politicized or perhaps on some sort of scale, quite politicized, indigenous people who have a sense of themselves as living rooted on a homeland. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't have a migration history themselves at some point, but it does mean that there is a sense of committedness to that land and that homeland as they see as their legacy and their integral part of their being as indigenous people on the land, in a homeland that they've defined as their own, even if other people have been trying to take it away from them. Okay, let me ask a question about that, because does that mean that any ethnic minority, let's take the Russian Federation, any non-Russian ethnic minority could be considered under this definition as indigenous? You mean even if they don't have their own designated homeland? Well, as you probably know, Russia's so-called federation has a whole series of nested sovereignties where there are different regions embedded inside of other regions. Smaller indigenous peoples inside of Russia, so-called smaller in demography, in numbers, have sometimes their own districts, akruk, but they don't have their own republics. So we, first of all, in the Russian framework, make a distinction of the peoples who are indigenous, and there are about officially recognized just over 40 of them. A couple have been recognized since before. In the Soviet period, it was only 26. So you can see that they've been recognized more and more in the post-Soviet period, and they are under 50,000 in number. The largest of them are the Nenets, reindeer breeders, and they're in the past census perhaps even crossing that threshold. It's going to be an interesting test case. But then they're the ones with the republics. And titular peoples of their own republics are also considered indigenous by the UN definition, but not by Russia's definition. And in a way, they get left out of the human rights issues of indigenous people in some of the authorities' perceptions coming from Moscow. But they are non-Russians within their own republics, having their own, in some cases, majorities inside the republics, in other cases, not at all, because they've become minorities. So that word minority is also depends on where you're sitting and what perspective you're using for it. Because, of course, if you're looking from the whole of all of Russia, these are minority peoples. But if you're looking from the perspective of the Saha and the most recent census, the ethnic proportions have not yet been released, even though they were supposed to have been from the 2021 census, 2020-21. But we pretty much are sure that they've now crossed over that 50% threshold again. In the 20s, they were 86% of their own republic. So that number went down, the proportion went way down in the Soviet period with Sovietization and Russification. So I hope I haven't gone into too many weeds and details here, but these are examples. There are lots of different demographic proportions, some of the different ways that republics themselves were created whether they were gerrymandered or whether their borders were the same as they had been historically, I, there is a huge range of difference. And in the Russian Federation, what are the benefits outside of self-identification and cultural, but um, you know, here political or access to resources, what are the benefits of being in this category of indigenous? 
Well, it meant a whole lot more in the 90s than it does now. It's uh, certainly been very, very much re-centralized to get to some of those issues towards the end of this discussion. But the issue of what benefits there are, even though it seems as if now with uh, Putin policies of re-centralization and the kind of abrogation of bilateral treaties that had been created in the 90s, With all of that, it seems as if the republics aren't worth much. I still maintain that it's important to have the structure, the technical, legal ability to say that, yes, we do have a recognized homeland for these people. They have a titular right to this region. They are called the Sahara Republic. They are called, say, Tiva, Tiva, Tuvan Republic, or Buryatia, which was terribly gerrymandered, incidentally, in its own history around Lake Baikal. All of these peoples, and these are the groups I've studied especially, are ones that have had various histories of relationships to Moscow. People think it's all one thing, and I can just answer you by definition, but actually it's been a negotiated federalism for quite a while, ad hoc. And of course, there's also been systems of almost like the old Russian Empire, coming for petitions. People from the republics come and bargain for rights in various ministries, or they are trying to uh, uphold things that they've had as rights in certain kinds of bilateral treaties that involved sharing of resources. As I say, those treaties pretty much got abrogated, but nonetheless, these are important frameworks. The other thing that is cultural, The other issue that comes to very, very much ahead these days, because until fairly recently, even through the first two President Putin administrations, there were cultural rights that privileged the languages, the local indigenous languages. And by 2017, language laws and Ministry of Education policies started to be completely changed more towards Russification again and towards curtailing of those language trainings in the school that had been taken for granted. There had been a kind of deal that if you don't muck with foreign policy and you collaborate with us on hard-nosed economic stimulation of outside investment, for instance, then we'll give you much more free reign on cultural issues. So those were the kinds of conditions in the 90s that allowed for a real cultural revitalization. Mm -hmm. You published this book last uh, in 2021 called Galvanizing Nostalgia. And you write in it, in the introduction, a dominant trend in the past 30 years has been Siberian people's intertwined striving for self-determination, cultural revitalization, and spiritual vitality. These good faith efforts and dreams are threatened by political, social, and ecological change at multiple levels of multi-ethnic Russia. People are struggling for cultural dignity. I'd like to have you talk about this intertwinedness of this striving for cultural dignity and how this has played out in the research that you've done. First of all, it was a rekindling of language and the ability to have indigenous languages, Saha, Boryat, Thievan, Altaian, for instance, Caucasian, all sorts of Siberian peoples with their own republics, have those languages be taught in the school in fairly good numbers for the numbers of people who wanted them. There was some local Russian pushback in these republics. And as I said, by 2017, some of that kind of exciting revitalization, and it was really beginning to take off, had made up for some of the Russification education policies of the Soviet period. A lot of people are bicultural, and there's nothing wrong with that, and bilingual, but this was about recouping what they saw as their right to their own historical memories, their own cultural figures from the past, their own sense of spirituality and religion, and their own cosmologies. And some of what this included was a kind of mildly politicized sense of a right to a degree of sovereignty. Now, again, I use the term nested sovereignty. This is a matter of degree, and yet people were beginning to, to feel as if things were looking up. They negotiated a share of, for instance, in Sahara Republic, diamond resources. That allowed for a huge amount of 
cultural fund coming from diamond industry profits. And it was a time of the flourishing of summer solstice coming up, of ceremonies, of marvelous rejuvenation of theater traditions, great amounts of understanding and pride of, we're back to religion now, hierarchy, cosmology that included as many gods as had been in the Greek pantheons or the Nordic cosmologies. Revitalization of epics, and through the epics, the legends and understanding of people's pride in their histories. And yes, in some cases, these are warrior histories, which makes it interesting, but they're also valorizations of traditional shamans and their powers to help heal communities. It's a marvelous example of a a kind of opening up inquisitiveness that also included some awareness of international trends, meetings of other indigenous peoples around the world, intercommunications and understandings of where other places had enabled some indigenous empowerment and what that might look like for Siberian peoples. Frankly, a lot of Siberian peoples I know were fascinated by Standing Rock and they knew about it. One of the other things that was going on here is that they were able to experiment with things that were, you know, things like laughter therapy, things that were tangential, but part of a kind of expanding awareness of what their traditional spirituality might be. And it's each generation rekindles its own traditions. It's not frozen in time. A living culture is never frozen in time. So these are cultural revitalization processes that were opening up in a lot of different places. Until recently, I feel a little sad talking about this now, a different sense of the word nostalgia, (laughs) because uh, some of this has been curtailed for just the daily life realities of a very much more serious set of problems that have happened as Siberian natives are mobilized for the war and to become cannon fodder in the Ukraine war. You provided me with a a wonderful piece of music that's on YouTube that I want to play for the audience and, and then have you comment on this, speak to this cultural revitalization. So let me set it up. Okay, I just wanted to play a bit of this. I put the link for the YouTube in the chat. So if anybody wants to hear the whole song, it's really wonderful, I have to say. But tell us about this, because this is your home. Is that correct? Right. Well, among other things, it's it's actually our second home. We have a Siberian family or close, close friends living in the house next door to us. And they are both Russian in citizenship, Russia. Russian Federation citizens are Saha, and the husband is part Saha, part Boryat. And they are now in a position to also have other Siberians, including some people coming in from Saha Republic recently. And in the process, we also have a second study for my husband, and that's where that concert was taking place. This is Harley Balzer. He's the founder of Georgetown Center for Eurasian and Russian East European Studies. The people you heard, 
much more important. I want to focus on them. We're guests, house guests, and they were a wonderful example of crossover Siberian communication because the woman, Yuliana Krivoshakina, is someone who is Saha background and very much involved as a virtuoso with the jaw harp as well as singing. Um, jaw harp, incidentally, was traditionally associated with especially women and shamanic healing. Um, so she's a marvelous modern, uh, postmodern exemplar of that. And then we have Natin Chorev who's Tevin. It's Tevin throat music, of course, burst onto the scene in international world music, for those of you who don't know, through the group Hunhurtu. And I highly recommend looking them up as well. Pure Nature Music is actually the production company of one of the founding members of Hunhurtu, Alexander Bapa, is now based in California. And it's through him that we were able, with our close friends, the Solovyovs, to do the taping in the house concert for that event. And it is something we hope to be able to do in the future, possibly with a foundation that I'm trying to set up. But cultural issues have been somewhat overridden now. This charming house concert tour dream that we had of doing lots of these is being superseded by some of the realities of people who frankly are refugees and needing help who are coming from the Siberian indigenous peoples because they are being drafted and killed in greater numbers than their ethnic proportions. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you happen to get this concert going, please live stream it. We tend to. Jargal Solovyov is a, a master film producer maker himself. And we use that study as a studio for music recordings as well. Wow. Thank you very much for sharing that. It's a really lovely music. I'm going to go get some after this interview. This series is about religion. So I want to turn to one of the spiritual and religious issues you've done a lot of work on, and that is shamanism. What is shamanism? Okay, first of all, it's a tricky word because it's the word shamanism has gone of gone out not only of fashion but of and I think rightly so usage among people who really do study this stuff. <laughs> and 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 why? Why? Because it, it's so diverse. It's not even one thing. Uh, and while I can give you some basics and, and make some generalizations, and sometimes it is appropriate to talk at that level, we have to remember that these are very much earth-based, nature-oriented, integral with nature, ecology philosophies that are behind shamanic thinking. So I like the adjectival word better, shamanic I also focus in my own research on shamans themselves, the healers. What do they do? Why are they healing? What are they healing? And here we have splits between whether it's the focus on individuals and body, spirit, mind, life force kinds of understandings of holistic medicine which has, of course, become very, very popular. It wasn't as popular when I first started studying shamans. And it's just fascinating, the credibility of it. There are even UN programs to help indigenous healers understand how to also administer vaccinations, say. There's a respect and an understanding that these are known and helpful people in their own communities often. But the larger picture of traditional shamans and their activities also has some downsides, some negatives in terms of spirit power being used for cursing. One of the things that I've picked up on from my understanding, I've been taught by Saha, including Saha shamans. I've never become an actual apprentice, though I was invited, but I've become much closer to some people who are able to get these things across now because they are living in multiple worlds, including the world of 20th century, 21st century medicine. For instance, I work very, very long and respectfully with a recently deceased shaman, Alexandra Konstantinova Cherkova. Alexandra was told by her shaman father, you're the one with the medical healing talent in our family. 
you're the one maybe who should learn how to do European medicine as well. Find out what makes that tick, what's going on with that. And maybe you can understand it even possibly integrate or at least understand what that world is like as well. So she actually became a surgeon and the head doctor of her entire region. And then she realized after a while and for complicated reasons that have to do with shamanic healing that you do on yourself, it's almost like psychiatry, but you go through an enormous amount of what's called shamanic illness, almost spirit torture to get to higher levels of understanding. She had that. And she realized she didn't want to become the kind of, as her father had put it, shaman who cuts, the surgeon who is actually cutting into people. But she wanted to become more the person who was able to flexibly understand when to practice traditional kinds of healing, including, of course, at the very basic level, herbal healing and your spiritual connectedness to plant life and ecology the kinds of things we know from braiding street grass, incidentally, and Robin Wall Kimmerer's very famous book for Native American healing traditions. So that kind of process was what was going on in Alexandra's mind and in her practice. And she was able to take people who were her interlocutors, I don't want to use the word patients, her supplicants, people who wanted her help, and decide on the basis of their particular individual needs what kind of healing would be best for them. So that's one kind of shamanic practice. Another has to do with the bigger issues of healing community, not individuals, but trying to understand where your own community and its growth as a community comes in, in terms of spiritual and cultural revitalization, ritual healing, leading through rituals. For instance, those summer solstice ceremonies I brief, briefly mentioned as part of the cultural revitalization. That's become very, very important. For instance, in Saha Republic, comparable shamanic community healing using Buryat traditions has also been going on in Buryat here around Lake Baikal and Talgan traditional ceremonies for particular clans. And then Tiva. In Tiva, there's been a huge revitalization. One of the folklorists in the Soviet period who had shamanic background really made claims that Tiva was the site of Ur-shamanism. And he would use that word, shamanism. He would say, we're the first people's first religion. This is Kinim Lassam also passed away recently, and this is a memorial to him to give a nod to his legacy. And he's someone who was very, very proud of the larger issues of what shamanic poetry and ritual language gave to the human community in general. So as far as he was concerned, shamanism really was the world's first religion. So there are lots of different ways to look at this. I tend to think the focus on what shamans actually do and what they say they do is the safer, the <laughs> safest way to go, because otherwise you're going to be all over the map. And I haven't even gotten to whether you're going to critique neo-shamans and shamans of our Western culture or not. I'm much more liberal on that kind of level than a lot of people who are more purist anthropologists and only take uh, shamans seriously if they come from indigenous peoples. But in some sense, we were all at one point connected to the earth and to cosmologies. And then that becomes important in terms of the techniques. How do you do that? Do you use drugs? Do you not use drugs? Do you use trance meditation? How you do it? So another part of the package is the methodologies. We rarely hear about indigenous people in Russia. <laughs> Frankly, we don't hear about indigenous people at all in the press. And I like to say how in the American consciousness, Native Americans are just invisible people for the most part. But here we did hear about one interesting figure, Alexander Gubishev, a shaman from Sakha. And he made a trek to exercise Putin and was eventually arrested and sentenced to a psychiatric hospital. I know you've written an article about Shaman Alexander, but what do you make of this moment and his efforts in the context of general indigenous political and spiritual activity in the Russian Federation? Okay, first of all, Alexander Gabishev is Saha. 
his own background is Saha. But his movement became much more than that. It became actually multi-ethnic, included anybody who wanted to come along for the ride. And he was starting literally walking from Yakutsk. Technically, he was going to go down through Boryatia, and he got that far and into Chita, and he almost got farther. He was walking, amazingly enough, in his conception and plan to Moscow to go to Red Square to create a ritual. By that time, he was hoping lots of multi-ethnic people, not just indigenous, would actually come and support him. And he would have a fire ritual and offering to purify that quote-unquote demon in the Kremlin. (laughs) (laughs) And the more I think about it, the more I think he called the number on motivations of President Putin quite early. And of course, he wasn't allowed to do this. He was stopped twice. I won't go into the details of how many times he tried his track. At one point, he was planning to actually do it with a caravan. Um, he'd gotten very popular, including, again, not just with indigenous. And I think that to answer what happened and why and how could he have become so popular, and why was he so much of a threat? Because at no point was he a real threat. I, I, that's the thing, right? <laughs> but he created a people's movement and he was speaking truth to power. And here's where I'm actually going to give you a little tiny taste of his voice because you've heard my voice enough. <laughs> and, and because some of what he was saying, this truth to power stuff was really amazing. He was talking sense. And this is why. And he, he got to be quite the public speaker. He had rallies along the way of his march as he gathered followers. He said, to the people of Russia, I say, choose for yourself a normal leader, young, competent. To the leaders of the regions, I say, take care of your local people and the issues they care about and give them freedom. To the people, I say, don't be afraid of that freedom. We're endlessly paying out, paying out. Will our resources last for our grandchildren? And this sort of echoes the kinds of to seven generations things that go on with Native American communities, the consciousness that you need to leave things for the next generation and certainly land and certainly respect for the land in a time of climate change. So he was aware of all of this. Then he would do crazy things in our estimation because this is not your stereotypical, if there is one in your mind, shaman. Give simple people bank credit. (laughs) Oh, he had a practical program. (laughs) Let everyone have free education and the chance to choose their careers freely. There should not be prisons. And he goes on to talk about how sad and terrible the prisons are in, in Russia. Not knowing, although he may have understood somewhat that what he was doing was pretty incendiary, that he was going to end up not in a prison, but in a psychiatric clinic. And the other thing that has happened with Alexander. Gabishev, and he's uh, certainly not so much in the news anymore, but oh my goodness, he's a poster child now, or I should say person, rather than using the metaphor of a child, for psychiatric punishment of political dissidents. This became famous in the Soviet period. It was even done in the Tsarist period, and certainly persecution of shamans was um, part of the history of shamans in Siberia for way back. And he is now in a clinic uh, somewhere near the Amur River in the Far East region. And he is reviewed every six months, but so far there hasn't been any kind of ability to release him. And I I'm not in a position to make any predictions and don't want to. I hope he's released, but I think he would probably be still considered a threat because he was anti-war from way, way back. And he did make public statements about it. Well, it sounds like from the words that you read, we could all apply those to our lives, (laughs) regardless of where we live and most places around the world. (laughs) Right, right, right. I mean, among other things, shamans were among the most intelligent and articulate people in their communities. That is clearly a pattern. Let me ask you a question then about this issue of nostalgia. And given the revitalization of shamanic practice, how do indigenous communities, based on the examples maybe you know of, how do they regard the Soviet period? Well, nostalgia doesn't necessarily, in a lot of these folks' minds, and again, I'm not speaking for them, but talking about my interlocutors, 
Um, it's not necessarily back to the Soviet period that they are uh, nostalgic for. Um, it could be much more pre-Soviet, but selective. Nobody is saying they want to do completely away with modern conveniences. And galvanizing nostalgia question mark was the frame in which I wanted to say certain kinds of leaders can remind you of what is the usable past. What is a good thing that was part of your own people and tradition and legacy that you would like to rekindle, whether it's um, honoring the sun, whether it's being humble before spirits, whether it's knowing how to do a proper ritual to have a burial ceremony with respect and tradition. And sadly, that's been the case because of so many people also being mowed down by COVID among the Siberian communities. So much of this is what specific kind of nostalgia could be reactivated and made new. That's where the galvanizing comes in. Retrospective nostalgia in the original kind of theorizing of Svetlana Boyum in Harvard, and I don't want to get too much into this, was one where it was possible to actually use this sort of thing for real right-wing nationalism. But it doesn't have to be that. It's not, it doesn't always have to be what you call retrospective nostalgia with kind of nationalist claims. It, it doesn't need to be politicized that way. Would you say, like speaking temporally, the selective past, the usable past, even from before Soviet period, is it more about in terms of usable past or moving to the future, would you say? It's not an idea to return, but it's about to reincorporate. Exactly. People are aware of cultural processes and not becoming, so to speak, frozen in time. And therefore, it's very important for a kind of, again, sense of cultural dignity that people are able to have a kind of interconnectedness with their religious, spiritual roots. And if that's not allowed, if that starts to be repressed again, then the resentment can fester. I mean, these are dangerous things that can create polarization processes. Now, Russian Federation is a multi-confessional place in, in addition to its multi-ethnic. So what is the relationship between these shamanic practices and spirituality with kind of the more recognized religions, Buddhism, Russian Orthodoxy, and others? Again, shamans are more ad hoc, community-oriented, but not um, people of the book. And I'd say, first off, they're not missionizing. I don't want to go into so much what they're not, but since you're asking me to make the comparisons, the issue really becomes how have shamanic practices changed over time? And in some ways, because of Buddhism, and some folks uh, in these republics are very much of Buddhist traditions, in Buryatia particularly, and there are some Buddhist converts in Saha and some Buddhists in Teva as well. This is important. And they also can integrate those practices with shamanic traditions as well. So it's a more open to syncretic practice kind of base to begin with. That makes it, again, very specific down to the ground and local rather than any kind of pretensions towards world religion. They may now start to have their own sacred texts. I wouldn't put that out of the realm of possibility for the future and poetry. And the ritual language, again, as I mentioned, can be very beautiful. And so there are some places where they might be compared to uh, more... Uh, I don't want to say standard, but so-called world religions, um, um, more widespread. But I also think that maybe it's time to use the word modesty, humbleness. They don't have those kinds of aspirations. Now, let's turn to some, some issues that are involved in our very present day. Now, there's been recent calls inside and outside of academic circles to decolonize Russia and Russian studies. As somebody who has been has decolonized from the get go, <laughs> uh, what is what is your view of these calls as someone who has looked at indigenous communities in Siberia? Yeah, no, I totally welcome this movement. I'm so glad people are making uh, an effort to study uh, a lot of others. There's nothing wrong with studying Russian cultural 
traditions. Don't get me wrong. And I have one edited volume called Russian Traditional Culture. But having said that, (laughs) I really feel strongly that it is time to pay a lot more attention to non-Russians inside of Russian Federation, for instance. There are 21 republics not counting Crimea, and certainly not counting the most recent Donetsk People's Republic. There are lots of other indigenous people as well, all worthy and fascinating in terms of our attention, if they want you as an outsider to be attentive. The other part of this is paying more attention to indigenous scholars themselves, whether they're studying their own histories and legacies or whether they're studying other peoples and have insights that are comparative as well and analytical. Indigenous scholars have been blossoming, please notice. And so, yes, I'm thrilled at this whole movement towards decolonization. But I also want to say there's some other layers to this. It's not only about studying others who haven't had enough attention. It is also about admitting the downsides of Russian aggression in history. One of our decolonizing panels that we had at the Association for the Advancement of Eurasian Studies, ASIS, was precisely on these kinds of issues. Russian aggression histories, colonial history, settler colonization needs to be understood from indigenous points of view and from critics who are themselves of Russian background. This doesn't have to be done on the basis of ethnic identity alone in terms of who the scholars are, but it's about perspective. It's about approach. It's about opening up and understanding that there were indigenous rebellions. My current book project right now, because I'm so angry, is is actually going to be called Siberian People Power. It's about the so-called rebellions that I would never call rebellions, resistance movements in history across time and currently movements against the center. There are phenomenal stories that haven't been told. A whole Buddhist republic inside of the current territory of Buryatia that people don't know about from the 20s. A whole indigenous rebellion against forcing children into boarding schools that I have written about. That's an international topic, if there was one. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm not mentioning it by accident. And so what we have is a need to understand these histories of aggression from other views. The kinds of models for Native studies that Paul Nadasti has given us or David Truer, who wrote The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee and whose work I very much admire on the U.S. history side. And then that's actually... I've only made two points about decolonization. There's another one, and that is the one I hinted at just now, and that is activism. Let's face it. If you are sympathetic with the communities you're studying, and in anthropology, that's an okay thing to be. You can be empathetic. You're not pretending to be so-called objective. You need to have a whole picture. You need to have a lot of understanding and a lot of data before you can make judgments. But... Once you have that, you are allowed to do what we call action anthropology, if you feel so impelled. And so another kind of decolonization is doing the kind of activist anthropology that allows you to join ecological movements and be empathetic and sympathetic to indigenous causes and contribute to them, help them. And finally, staying with this theme of decolonization, and you've already hinted at this, our understanding of Russia is incredibly Moscow-centric. It's Russian ethnocentric. As a historian, the archive has that ability to even structure that. How do you understand life looking at Russia through the eyes or the experience of Siberia's indigenous communities? What do you understand differently from that Moscow centrism? There are different ways of looking at center and periphery. Right. And so one of the things that's absolutely fascinating is you shift perspective when you realize that people inside Sahara Republic may not think of Moscow as only their center. They might think of Yakutsk as their center. There are different ways of thinking about what is more important, different kinds of values and 
one of the other parts of this, of course, the kind of intent behind the question and behind some of the decolonization awareness is that we need to understand what the sociologist Leokadia Drobyshova used to say, and another person who passed away recently who I'm mourning. She used to say polarization begins at the center, in other words, with Moscow policies. Moscow politics. Don't blame those restless natives. <laughs> blame blame the people at the center who aren't understanding well enough local conditions. Even in the archives, when you're in the Stalin period, you see these kinds of claims. They just don't understand us inside of Moscow. So you need to be much more aware of understanding histories from indigenous points of view, their own histories, that even comparing the three republics I've been studying in Siberia, again, Sakha, Tiva, Tuva, and Buryatia, they have lots of different ways of looking at their own histories, their own paths. Buryatia lost so much land, it was gerrymandered in our political terminology. Tiva, Tiva was an independent state, or maybe says some people say a client state of Mongolia, but it wasn't part of Russia until the same timing as the Baltics came in. And they didn't even have their own republic until 61. We need to be aware of these things when we're talking about the experiences, history from the perspective of non-Russian others. Saha, and again, a huge gubernia. They're not trying to claim any other land, although actually even their territory was at one point larger than it is today. Then there's also the way of understanding them through cross-cultural and linguistic ties. Saha and Tivans are Turkic peoples. There's a Turkic solidarity to it. There is a fascination with Eurasian peoples and with connections to Central Asia. It gives you all sorts of abilities when you shift your perspective away from Moscow to think about horizontal ties, to think about cultural and linguistic ties that mean something to these folks that you didn't realize would mean something to them, perhaps. Or maybe you did realize and you come in as a linguist. That's also a marvelous way of looking at this issue of all of these multi-ethnic histories and cultures. Colonial legacies themselves matter in terms of what they left behind, what kind of Russification, what kinds of demographics, how much interethnic marriage. Clevens are almost four-fifths of their own population. They have a huge majority. Buryats are in a minority, and I've already explained Saha. So we've got these different balances that do matter, these demographics. So we have to understand that. And then just to close in terms of before we get into questions, the other thing about this perspective that is really refreshing and really basic, and it feeds into what I said about action anthropology, nothing about us without us. Take your cues from people themselves, the scholars themselves, activists, politicians. They're all over the map inside their own republics. And of course, Moscow's doing a good job of trying to divide and rule and divide them and split communities. But all of that aside, take your cues from the people you respect and don't try to talk about them without some endorsement from them or advocate their causes without understanding what those causes are. Nothing about us without us is such a fair way, and it's become a mantra for indigenous peoples all over the world. That was Marjorie Mandelstam-Balzer. Marjorie Mandelstam-Balzer is a faculty fellow at the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University and co-founder of the Indigenous Studies Working Group at Georgetown. She's the valedictory editor of Anthropology and Archaeology of Eurasia, a translation journal that features scholars from the region, and she has authored or edited seven books on Eurasia, mostly focusing on Siberia, including Galvanizing Nostalgia, published by Cornell University Press in 2021, and Shaman's Spirituality and Cultural Revitalization, published by Palgrave in 2012. This is Eurasian Knot, and I'm your host, Sean Guillory. This episode was edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper from Podcuts Editing. You know, doing editing of interviews can get a bit of a hassle, get a bit tiring, even boring at sometimes. So that's why the Eurasian Knot has partnered with Podcuts Editing. Their expertise consistently makes our podcast sound better and streamlines our production process. 
So if you need some audio editing, go to www.podcutsediting.com and experience their service. And keep in mind, you get your first edit completely free. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners just like you. So if you like this podcast, please help us out. Become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash And if you can't chip in a couple of bucks every month, then the least you can do is spread the word on social media about our episodes. This is a big help, too. Until next time, bye. Чики чалы, а потом ее стрессим, чтоб не убежали.